The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, Pulitzer Prize winner Elizabeth Strout joins us to talk about prejudice, alliances and how characters can sometimes leap off the page. I mean, Olive has caught onto the imagination in a way that fictional characters rarely do. And 11 years right. later, people talk about Olive moments, don't they? Right, they do. It's interesting. To me, it's interesting. <laughs> so so what is it about her now, do you think, having lived with her for so long? that? Well, I was surprised when um, when I found out how popular she had become. And I, I, I sort of have a theory at the moment that it's really because she's just so complicated and she's... She's got so many different aspects to her, and I think most of us do. We'll be discussing how some fictional creations can almost make the jump into real life later on. Elizabeth Strout was 53 when she published her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Olive Kittredge. Olive is blunt, bad-tempered and awkward, but millions of readers fell in love with her nevertheless. Now she's back with a sequel, Olive Again, which picks up only a month later. But before we hear from Strout, Claire, how would you explain Olive's appeal to readers who missed her first time around? That formulation, fell in love with her, is interesting because <laughs> fell in love with her and it sort of suggests that she's lovable. Yeah. And the point about Olive is she isn't always lovable. <laughs> and, I mean, I think it's, it's precisely that sort of blunt, awkward, tell it like it is, and, but like nobody usually tells it, quality about her that that that's why people relate to her but they they bought the book in droves and wove her into their life nevertheless yeah yeah i mean we've all had our olive moments haven't we but uh, <laughs> there's a there's a, a lovely scene in in this latest novel olive again where um she she she's married to she's to her second husband and um he he's a republican he he there's traveling off on holiday and he gets a first class ticket and she refuses to get a first class ticket on olivish principles now i totally identify with this but then she's so have uncomfortable you refer, have you refused first class travel yourself well, I, well actually i know because i've never been offered it but, <laughs> but I, it has happened to a friend of mine and and um, and, and then this fr- and then olive and then she's so uncomfortable on the way out that on the way back, she says, oh, OK, then I'll come first class and then thoroughly enjoys the champagne. <laughs> that's that's Olive. You know, she's a totally fully rounded, understandable. It's sort of lovable in her quirks and her foibles, um, and, and, you know, and, and but also there is a sort of a goodness to her. The point about Olive is she doesn't do platitudes and she doesn't do saccharine. And of course, it 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 helps that Frances McDormand played her in the 2014 <laughs> HBO miniseries. They're someone who I'm sure all of us, including me, would like to have play them in the um, television version of their own lives. Uh, anyway, you began, Claire, by asking Strout to read a bit from the novel, where Olive has plucked up the courage to call Jack Kennison, a retired academic who might just be more than a friend. Olive stood up now and walked through her house. It felt no longer a house, but more a nest where a mouse lived. It had felt this way for a long time. She sat down in the small kitchen, then she got up and walked past the bump-out room, as she and Henry had called it, now with the purple quilt spread messily on the large window seat. This is where Olive had slept since her husband's death. And then she went back to the living room, where pale water streaks from last winter's snow showed on the wallpaper near the fireplace. She sat on the big chair by the window and rocked her foot up and down. The evenings were interminable these days, and she remembered when she had loved the long evenings. Across the bay, the sun twinkled, now low in the sky. A shaft of light cut over the floorboards and onto the rug in the living room. Olive's unease grew. She could almost not stand it. She rocked her foot higher and higher, and then when the sky had just turned dark, she said out loud, Let's get this over with. 
She dialed Jack Kennison's number. She had lain down beside the man almost a month ago. It still felt like she had dreamed it. Well, if Bertha Babcock answered the phone, Olive would just hang up, or if any woman did. Jack answered on the second ring. Hello, he said, sounding bored. Is this Olive Kittredge calling? How did you know that? she asked. A wave of terror went through her as though he could see her sitting in her house. Oh, I have a thing called caller ID, so I always know who's calling. And this says, hold on, let me take another look. Yes, this says Henry Kittredge, and we know it can't be Henry, so I thought perhaps it was you. Hello, Olive. How are you tonight? I'm very glad you called. I was wondering if we'd ever speak again. I've missed you, Olive. So that is uh, our reintroduction to Olive Kittredge, who we first met in 2008 in your Pulitzer Prize winning um we can't exactly call it a novel. You can call it a novel. <laughs> it you is can a call novel. It anything. Or, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. But we'll come a little bit later to the yeah. particular form you use. Um, and um, as I mean, Olive has caught onto the imagination in a way that fictional characters rarely do. And eleven years right. later, people talk about Olive moments, don't they? Right, they do. It's interesting to me. It's interesting. <laughs> so, so what is it about her now? Do you think, having lived with her for so long, that well, I was surprised when um, when I found out how popular she had become and I, I I sort of have a theory at the moment that it's really because she's just so complicated and she's she's got so many different aspects to her and I think most of us do but I think most of us keep those aspects damped down and she doesn't she's just out there and so I think there's always something about her that somebody can relate to a little bit on some level. She's a retired school teacher um, who has a son who who has probably moved away to get away from her, yes. although it's never quite articulated. Right. She has a sort of quite a prickly relationship with her um, daughter-in-law, very prickly. In fact, I remember her daughter-in-law from from their wedding. Here yes. you go. You see, I'm talking like one of the right. family. Well, her daughter-in-law the was very rude about all that was the dress. first daughter-in-law. Yes, <laughs> she was terrible about the dress. That's right. You're absolutely right. That so was, there, <laughs> there is sort of, you've created this world, and it doesn't only refer to Olive and Olive's world because you also have in this is also a, a series of linked short stories right. like Olive Kittredge but it also refers to characters in your other novel that's the right. Burgess Boys that's back. right and even Amy and Isabel and comes Amy back and in the very end yes yeah. exactly so so one piece of advice that um, you was in in a completely different novel My Name is Lucy Barton was given to, to Lucy Barton who's a, um, an aspiring fiction right. writer is you will only ever have one story you'll, you write, you'll write your one story many ways do you ever worry don't ever worry about story you will only have one how much is that a reflection of your writing life? You know that's such an interesting question because I've I've thought about that having since I wrote that and have been asked about that I, I honestly think I do have more than one story but I think it was it it made sense for Sarah Payne, the writing teacher, to tell Lucy that in that book. It felt right then. But since then, I've been confronted with the fact that I, I think I have more than one story. Well, is it a question but, of having lots of stories, but one world? But one universe, right. One universe. Right. Which... I think that's probably it. Yes, exactly. I have one universe of of my friends <laughs> and tell made us up. your and friends that you've made up I yes, love that so you yes. feel that they're sort of in your life with you they go oh along. yes yes once they're there they're always there they stay there and that's why they return because I'm so delighted when I find out oh look you know Helen and Jim Burgess could 
be dropping their grandchild off in Maine. How fabulous. And Bob lives here now, so let's get him, you know, in Crosby. And it's just fun. It's just so fun for me when I realize that there are all these connections that can be made. Tell us a little bit about this this world that they inhabit. It's a small town, New England right. place that it's, is not necessarily familiar to us. What does this mean to you? What, what does it evoke for you? Right. It's a fictional town named Crosby. And my college roommate's last name was Crosby. And I asked her years ago if I could use her name. And she said, sure. So it's a fictional town in Maine that um, I, I sort of can picture it, you know, with, with its coastline and and um, a small town, but it's it's like any other small town. It still has its class issues. There are still those at the top of the hierarchy, in this case, the Congregationalists, and then there are the Irish Catholics, and then, you know, the Franco-Americans. There's, there's always a hierarchy. And down the bottom, the Somalis. That's right. The Somalis have recently moved into um, a neighboring town. And the Somalis were in the Burgess Boys. They were right. central That's to the right. plotting of the, of the Burgess right. Boys. But mm-hmm. they're sort of peripheral here and represented by this rather magical carer called... Right. Um, called Halima Butterfly. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Who arrives he calls to... her Butterfly, but oh. her name is Halima. Halima. <laughs> right, exactly. And Who she arrives? comes from an hour away. She comes from Shirley Falls. So the Somalis live in Shirley Falls, which is an hour away, and she arrives from there. Do, does this represent America for you? What does it represent? Is it a well, state of the nation thing, or is it know, just about a, a specific location? It's, it's really, in my mind, it's very much about a specific location. And now it it in a way, represents part of America. I mean, well, it very much represents Maine. This is the story of Maine, actually, right now. Um, There are immigrants that are coming to Maine, which is very exciting and and quite new or relatively new. Um, And I suppose in many ways, it's the story of other parts of the country as well. Is that where you live, Maine? I live part-time in Maine and also New York. And that was where you were originally Yes, that's yeah, where I was yeah. raised. So, so it's the sort of something yeah. you've known all, all of your oh life. Oh, my goodness, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, there are lots of themes in this, and, and some of them are quite bleak. Um, for example, as one character says, it's, 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 part of it is a meditation on the es- essential loneliness of people and what people do to deal with that loneliness right, exactly. and the sort of quiet heroism of people's right. strategies for dealing exactly, with loneliness. Exactly, and I think, um, I, I mean, I think that, in, I guess in my mind, there's a dignity to the way that people deal with this and, and make their alliances and stay mostly with their alliances, or perhaps they don't, but, but there are ways that people have been dealing with these things for years. So I'm interested you use that word alliances because mm. in a way, ali- uh, I was wondering whether I could use the word love. And uh, it, love is love, is ab- it is but love. But it is a form of alliance, isn't it? Yes, it's, exactly. Alliance is a pragmatic yeah. form of love. Right. But you also have, um, all, most of your characters, all the foregrounded characters are old, most of them, not all of them. Right. And they have been living, they have, they have patterns. Um, for example, you have right. a, 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 an old couple who you say have been living together for 42 years and for the last 35 have barely talked. That's they live right. in a world with two right. televisions. With, and with duct tape down duct the street. Tape down just, the middle of the right, room. Exactly. I uh, thought that was so funny myself, but anyway. It's <laughs> funny. Exactly. Exactly. There right. is a black humour in, in yes, all this, isn't there? But they're ve- they are actually very married. And by the end of that story, you realise, oh, yeah, right, they're married. So, so, so there are relationships is one sort of mm-hmm. alliance or love, but there's right. also the what alliance people make with their children, which comes out right. in that story, and right. also in, exactly. in Olive's very, right. very not- notably right. in Olive's right. story. Right, right, right. So, there, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways of parenting that come up in this book or in all my books, and 
and um, disappointments with parents and disappointments with children and all that sort of thing, you know. But but ultimately, it's it, there's a sense of it being good enough. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, oh yes, I think I don't think there's any child or parent who doesn't love their child or their parent in this book. I mean, it's not a matter of love; it's a matter of loving imperfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and early on in the in the extract you read, um, Jack, you, you get a sense of Jack being quite. Um, he's sort of a bit pernickety, slightly. Um, he's a Republican. He's he's a sort of very particular character. Mm-hmm. Um, but and his relationship with Olive is sort of is completely unexpected. It is very, actually, but it is actually unexpected. transforming of him. Right, it is, and it and it was very very interesting for me to uncover Jack, to go back and really take a look at Jack, and to realize I think what I came to understand why their relationship makes sense is because he's. He's actually trying to be honest with himself. At this point in his life, he's actually looking to see. He asks, what, how does one live an honest life? And he's, he a, he's, really a, he's, a, he's a sort of a character we probably know. I mean, we know it from American fiction apart from any, anything else, don't we? This, right. An American professor very right. like, has had power, has been right. dishonest right. in and all sorts of ways in his family right. life. Yeah. But he actually is wondering at this point in his life, um, looking at himself critically and and with with a particular hardness in a certain way and then and I think when I wrote the line about him being with Olive it's that he could be himself with her I realized there we go that's it he can be himself with Olive and she can be herself with him and that's no small gift Mm. at any stage in life Mm. and there's sort of tenderness about he loves the essential oliveness of her he does and the essential oliveness is is sort of what we also love as readers of her although she's a cantankerous old thing she is she She really is and she (laughs) drives him a little bit crazy but he does love her and she loves him. And it was very interesting to realize that she could be married to such a different man, her second marriage, you know, from Henry, who was obviously just a pure sweetheart. One of the things about her being a retired school teacher in a small town is that she keeps bumping into ex-students. Yes. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> and these are sometimes quite uncomfortable encounters yeah, she has. Right. Well, you know, right. Exactly. And she doesn't even remember some of them, like, you know, with Betty. She said to me, really, I had you? And Betty said, yeah, you were always sending me to the principal's office. And Betty, Betty is one of her, ca- another right. of her carers. Her, another her, of her carers. Her but then there's also a very uncomfortable encounter with, the, with somebody who's since risen to become Poet Laureate. That's right. That's right. And, um, and Olive had never expected anything of Andrea LaRue. And, um, and Olive also has a, a prejudice, which she comes to understand against Franco-Americans. And even though she's very happy to have the Somali woman come into her home, she has that leftover prejudice that people had about the Franco-Americans from many years ago. And she never expected anything of Andrea LaRue. And Andrea LaRue comes, uh, goes and becomes the poet laureate of the United States. And that is sort of mirrored by Betty's intolerance of, of, of Halima Butterfly. Yes. Betty, who is racist, basically. Right, exactly. It, Betty's totally racist, right. Yeah. Um, so... so you know, we're making it sound sad, and it is a very funny. Oh, I think I actually think the book is very funny myself. <laughs> Do you laugh when you write it? Um, no, I don't laugh out loud, but I really enjoy myself. I mean, I get a real kick out of it. So, where does the humour come from? I think it's not like I, I'm not trying to be funny at all. But as I'm writing it, I realize oh, this is fun. This is great. This will be really, you know. Um, I think the humour comes partly from from some of the sadness. I mean, I think that they go hand in hand very frequently and you know the, like the couple with a duct tape 
down the middle of their living room. Um, and their dominatrix daughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, th- I, th- I just thought that was very funny. I was wondering to what extent you feel your, your part, consciously feel you're part of a grand tradition, because I kept, what kept coming to my mind is um, Nathan Zuckerman, the Philip Roth character, yeah. towards the end of his life when he's sitting in incontinence pads. Yeah. Now, your yeah. characters are in incontinence pads, some, right. of, your, some of your characters right. are. And, are. But you've sort of reclaimed that territory for a woman. right. Exactly. Is that is that something that you were conscious of doing when you were doing? No, I just thought I just thought okay, she's getting older. This is going to happen. It, it's just real, and so I had I just had it happen. I just put it in there because you know older people this this happens too frequently, and and that was just a part of her aging process. And it also means that she and she and Jack. Yeah, they're, they have a they're married for eight years, but yeah. presumably it doesn't involve sex because he's also in incontinence pads because right. he's had a prostate he's had he's his had his prostate surgery, prostate right? Removed. And yeah. we're not. I mean, I left that I left that ambiguous whether or not his prostate situation improved enough for him to be able to be sexually active. I just left it alone so that people can think whatever they want. Yeah, but there is quite a lot about yeah. them li- how they hold each other yeah. in the night and right. lying with their le- his right. legs over him. And right. and, and they, it's a sort of closeness that yes. doesn't fit into classic pictures of what married bliss is. I know, is. I know. Do you think that this is a novel that will appeal to younger people or do you think it's... You know, I've, I've, I have, I've worried about that. Um, but when, whenever a younger person shows up in line and says, you know, I love Olive and I love this book, again, I'm always so glad. So it does appeal to some younger people, obviously. But yeah. And um, what? Where? Where will you take this next? Do you think this is the end of Olive, or will you? Go well, on? you know, I mean, I really thought it was the end of her before, so um, I just don't dare say. <laughs> but maybe it'll be Lucy Barton's turn to come back again. Right, it might be for a third time. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Because these are, like I said, my friends. (laughs) That was Elizabeth Strout. Olive Again is published by Viking in the UK and Random House in the US. Olive Kittredge got us thinking about characters who seem to jump the barrier between fiction and reality to become part of our shared culture. We'll be discussing how that can be possible after the break. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. It's an extraordinary thing when you stop to think about it, and I don't stop to think about it very much, that a bunch of squiggles on a page can bring a character so vividly to life that we almost think they're real. So, Claire, what's going on? Well, I I think that fiction in its broadest sense, in the sense of storytelling, it's like that sort of primeval thing that we've always done gathered around our campfires, helps us to find and articulate our shape um, because because it gives us a way of a narrative, of finding a narrative for ourselves. There are philosophers who argue that actually our self-identity is in fact a story of ourselves. Yes. I mean, I, I think very few people would argue with that now. Um, and it's most obvious in children's literature. Um, you know, for example, when I was a kid, which probably dates me, we used to earnestly discuss which of uh, Louisa May Olcott's little women we were. <laughs> and I, I, I dare say um, there's little girls up and down the land discussing exactly the same thing even now. I know. I wanted to be Jo because she was a writer. There you go. And she was also headstrong, and she she was sort of colourful and got away with it. But I always suspected I was a I, I was an Amy who sort of well, Amy you know comes into her own, but she's a bit she's a bit sort of selfish. <laughs> um, the writer Samantha Ellis wrote a whole book about it a couple of years back, um, How to Be a Heroine, um, in which she reminded me of that other great debate of my teenage years, which was were you 
Charlotte Bronte's dutiful patient Jane Eyre or a passionate Cathy Earnshaw from her sister Emily's Wuthering Heights. Samantha was a Cathy and I was a Jane. But some and some, then some characters spill out your guilty secrets um, a bit like Olive does. Um, Helen Fielding's calorie counting wine quaffing Bridget Jones, for example, captured the zeitgeist of the late 1990s metropolitan singleton, which I wasn't. Never ha- and I have never, of course, been known to eat a consumer consumer glass of wine or count a calorie. <laughs> However, <laughs> even even uh, me, you know, I, I feel that I carry part of Bridget Jones in me, and I don't know whether. Th- I would have articulated that side of myself so clearly to myself were it not for her. Mm. Well, I mean, I think she brought out something, something of that, even of, 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 of us blokes as well. I mean, I remember reading the columns back in, in the, it was in the 90s, wasn't it, in The Independent, and thinking there was something really, kind of really real about them, that even I could recognise as a, you know, as a, as a young man not in, in, living anywhere near London. I wonder whether um, she would appeal so much to millennials, um, you know, these people who don't drink anymore. I mean, goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we'll pass over world. that one. We'll pass <laughs> over that one. not here, so, so we'll leave that to one side. I mean, you, you, you said that you identified to some extent with Bridget Jones, but I do wonder how much this is a girl thing, this sort of passion for identification with our with the characters of fiction, which goes along for our passion for reading. And, I, you know, I think women possibly re- do read, or certainly girls read in a slightly different way to boys. Did you have role models? Apart from Bridget, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Darcy, I presume. (laughs) I'm not sure I've quite got the musculature from Mr. Darcy, or at least his television incarnation as um, one of Austin's uh, famous characters in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, But I I think you're right. There may be a girl-boy thing here, or maybe there was a girl-boy thing back in the old days when we were young. Uh, I can't remember badging myself very much with characters from fiction at all, but actually maybe it's not just about identification, as you say. Maybe it's actually slightly more than that. The characters that leap off the page are sometimes really bad, people you wouldn't want to identify with. I mean, think of Becky Sharp, the social climber in Thackeray's Vanity Fair, or Hannibal Lecter, that cannibalistic serial killer and psychologist who's unquestionably part of our culture. I mean, he was first introduced back in 1981 in Red Dragon and then created on screen famously by Anthony Hopkins ten years later in The Silence of the Lambs. But he's loomed over Thomas Harris's work ever since. I mean, I've never read a word of Thomas Harris, but even and I know all about fava beans and Chianti. Oh, that picture of Hopkins in that sort of weird beige circ, oh, yes. circ, sort of face, semi-face mask. It sort of actually haunts my nightmares. You know, the, yes, the, this is another big question is, you know, the extent to which actually what we're seeing is the television version of, of, of literature, not literature itself, because it, it, creates, it creates images. And not only that, but also, I mean, we like to think on the books podcast that everybody's a reader, but actually sometimes people don't read books. There are some people for whom a bookshop is not a welcoming prospect. And no, so, Richard, really? <laughs> I had no idea. Imagine. <laughs> and so maybe it's actually maybe the moment when something leaps into television or leaps onto the onto the big screen is a moment when they kind of join our shared cultural experience. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. You know, we could think of endless other examples. For example, Ken Stott as Ian Rankin's Rebus, John Thor as, as Colin Dexter's Morse, but both detectives. Detective fiction does particularly well. And I think that that's because of the the, the, the way that the persona of, of the detective has developed in, in detective fiction. And, and something also about seeing them again and again as they come back from the next episode. Yeah, yeah. So they become a sort of rolling personalised soap opera, don't they? Internalised soap opera. But going back to the purely literary side of it, um, there are characters who've become actually part of the dictionary, part of the lexicon. For example, Pooterish, which I looked up, and it me and uh, the dictionary definition is self-important and mundane or narrow-minded, and that's a, from Charles and Weed and Grossmith's comic novel Diary of a Nobody, or 
or, you know, Falstaffian's one of the most famous, which I looked up again, fat, jolly and debauched from Shakespeare's Henry plays or my favourite, Eorish. I like animals. Eorish. <laughs> Pessimistic or gloomy from A.A. Mills' Winnie the Pooh. Yes, I think we all know a couple of Eeyores. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is what we say. We all know a couple of Eeyores. And then some even go on to be metaphors or part of one's mental filing system. So I, did, I did it just then, didn't I? You did. Exactly. Exactly. And a friend once pointed out to me that I, I regularly dis- describe people in terms of um, characters from Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows. Somebody's, I think of people as badgers or toad-like if, they, <laughs> if, they, if they're sort of very selfish and wander around parping a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when I'm cycling, there are lots of toads. That come, you know, it's, it's it's sort of it's a way of it's an alternative to road rage. I think, oh, he's just such a toad. Mm. But I also um, once described a well-known playwright as looking like Little Lord Fauntleroy's prosperous older brother. <laughs> <laughs> I won't name the playwright, um, and that's from that is interesting because you know we were talking about television, but actually a lot of these texts come down to us with illustrations. You know, Tenniel's Alice in Wonderland, or in this case, Reginald Birch's pen and ink drawings to um, Ivy Compton Burnett's Little Lord Fauntleroy. And the illustrations were so powerful in their time that they actually created a fashion in the US for suits which involved velvet cutaway jackets and matching knee pants worn with a fancy blouse and large lace or ruffled collar, which will maybe give you a clue about which playwright I was talking about. (laughs) Well, we name no names. (laughs) Anyway, it's not just about the pictures, is it? I mean, there's something about fiction that's very intimate. There's this illusion of immersion in somebody else his brain word by word. I mean, it makes me think of the work of Charles Fernieho, who was on the podcast a little while back. His notion of experiential crossing, as he says, which is the idea that characters from fiction or things from fiction cross over from that fictional world into your daily lives. Um, he thinks it's driven by internal voices, that internal voice in which we read, that, that internal voice in which we hear the narrator of a, picture, a piece of fiction talking in our brains. And he did a survey, actually, it was a survey that we helped with at the, at the Edinburgh Book, Book Festival a little while back. And in the survey, he found that 19% of readers said that the voices of fictional characters stayed with them even when they weren't reading, influencing the style and tone of their thoughts, or even speaking to them directly. And for some, it was almost as if a character had started to narrate my world, which is a kind of very disturbing experience. I'm not sure. Have you ever been taken over by a book that way, Claire? Yeah, sometimes often humour, you know, I think humorous Mm. writing, you know, for example, Stella Gibbons' Cold Comfort Farm, um, with with Aunt Ada Doom, who's who's always muttering about something nasty in the in the woodshed. I mean, that's become part of my. It, it's in my brain. Whenever I I need a thought to cheer me up, I can mutter to myself something nasty in the woodshed. <laughs> Yeah, and that's uh, probably a, a moment on which we should leave it. Uh, that's all for this week. Uh, next week we talk to science fiction duo James S. A. Corey. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode or any characters we've missed, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And remember, you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Apoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. <laughs>